Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Aaron Coulter and I'm the news editor at Resident Advisor. Our guest this week is Peter Gordon. Peter's roots stretch back to the New York downtown scene of the 1970s and 80s. He's the man behind the Love of Life Orchestra, an experimental disco ensemble that formed in 1977 and is still active 38 years later. Peter is as busy as ever these days. He put out an album earlier this year and he's collaborated with the likes of Factory Floor and Tim Burgess in recent times. We spoke in London recently while he was in town to perform some Arthur Russell instrumentals with his live band. You can find our full archive of exchanges on resonantadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at RA-Exchange. An exchange with Peter Gordon, up next. You're in London for the Arthur Russell Instrumentals tour. Why did you decide to revive that project a couple of years back? Well, this was a piece of Arthur's that I've always felt particularly close to and interested when I, uh, it was really the, when I first met Arthur in 1975, this was the piece that he was working on and he asked me to help him on it. So I sort of felt a both for that reason, a close affinity to the piece. Also, I've always been interested in instrumental uh, music, instrumental pop music, so I felt a closeness with it there. So in 2012, I was invited by the Kitchen Center in New York to revisit the piece and do a new reading, and I jumped at the opportunity. And then Benjamin Freeney of, of Foam Music I uh, had heard about the concert at the kitchen and he reached out to me and here we are. And when you got that offer from the kitchen in, in 2012, how did you go about assembling the, the group to perform? Because there's some people that you've been performing with for decades. There's some newer sort of members as well of the, of the group. Well, I th- was interested in doing is really working with a, both the core of veterans of longtime collaborators, both of Arthur and myself as well, plus some uh, newer members to bring added energy and to bring a, uh, a new viewpoint into the group. So I think it's, uh, things get, uh, anything gets stale if it's, uh, if there's not fresh energy, fresh blood into that. So uh, I saw this as an opportunity both to have the continuity and to bring a new perspective to the work. 
and your your son Max is also is is part of the, the outfit. Yeah, yeah. And he's he's been also sort of um, part of the Love of Life Orchestra. Yes, yes. So how long has how long has Max been been performing with you on stage? <laughs> well, really, ever since Max was born. I mean, we sort of had this relationship where we'd basically uh, play music together. I mean, this was really an important part of uh, family relationships. And I'd sit down at the piano and he'd play trumpet and we'd jam and then we'd switch and he'd sit down at the piano and I'd switch to saxophone. And uh, and he'd been uh, certainly hearing my music and hearing Arthur's music really since he was born. And uh, then as he evolved into his uh, own musical identity, he really, I mean, aside, obviously I'm, bias because he's my son but uh, uh he brings a really uh, a very strong musicality a very strong foundation to the sound as well and uh, especially now that he's older and he has his own uh, career as a uh, songwriter and a producer and a and a musician so he's bringing that uh, point of view as well and you mentioned you know Max growing up with Arthur's music and, and also your own sort of relationship and friendship with, with Arthur Russell. Um, tell me about how you, you first met Arthur. I first met Arthur when I moved to, uh, I was born in New York and then moved around when I was younger. So after college, moved back to New York. And this was in February 75. And one of the first persons who I met was Arthur. Actually, Reese Chatham introduced me to Arthur. This was in the East Village, and we sort of found that we had this affinity both for pop music and for experimental music, and that sort of began an ongoing conversation, musical conversation and conversation. And the live instrumentals work is kind of this, this meeting point between concert hall performance and, and pop music. What was it that appealed to, to you and Arthur about that that zone between those those two styles well i think it was really uh a lot of it represented our musical experiences growing up because really uh we were both performers trained on our instruments arthur on cello myself on clarinet and saxophone so we sort of had this musical training coming out of the classical world and an interest in experimental music and trying to push the boundaries of music as well but at the same time there was really this uh, a real kinesthetic connection with funky music and as a sax player I was always in playing in bands and in rock bands and in soul bands and and in funk bands and this was part of my music and so uh, I think for both of us what there was really the interest to sort of combine that music that music of physicality that music of the of the heart and the body as well with our uh, intellectual interests in in expanding the uh, form and possibilities. And I guess at that time mid-70s New York it must have been a a fertile time to to be exploring those possibilities? I think so. I mean, I think every generation really has their own fertile time. You know, they just, you just need to look right in front of you and look at the opportunities. New York was, other than art and other than really this dedication and sense of conviction, 
New York had nothing else. It was the city was broken. It was poor. It was like a uh, the neighborhood we lived in was, looked like a war zone. I mean, there were blocks and blocks of rubble, and um, no one had any ideas of you know making money or becoming uh, or making it rich but really there was this sense of conviction uh, in the, in the community of artists working together and this was uh, this really defined the community in, in, in New York and so the and since uh, there weren't th- this was the time before the real estate speculators was before gentrification and uh, we owned the neighborhood this this was this was our this was our turf and so when you came back to New York, you were living in East Village? Is that, yes, yes, yes. And it was all sort of, um, in terms of the downtown scene, it was all um, centred around those, a few blocks in that area, is that right? Well, there were there were a few centres, but really for, there was the uh, there was the East Village. Visual artists and those were needing larger spaces were also in Soho at the, uh, at the time, which was really mostly empty industrial lofts. And there were, I mean, there were no... There was one bar down in Soho. There were no no stores. Then in the East Village, which really had a, a long tradition of counterculture. I mean, it was uh, before we moved there. It was you know earlier. It was the one of the centers of the hippie movement. Generations before, it was an early. It was a center of even the anarchists movement. So this there was this long uh, tradition in this in, in this in this neighborhood. Just going back to Arthur, I, I wanted to ask you about his his legacy and the way his music and his importance to, mm-hmm. to music has been viewed and how that's kind of changed over time. Do you feel that there's there's been a growing appreciation for for what he did? Oh, absolutely. When Arthur was alive, there was uh, he wasn't getting much attention. Mostly, there was there were sort of the dance hits. I mean, not that they were huge, huge hits, but they really made a really important impact on the on on the club scene and on the dance music scene. But other than that, he was um, fairly under the radar at the time. Uh, but I think there's the nature of Arthur's music, and this is something which I've even been discovering, even in these series of performances. Because it, I mean, I'm continue to be amazed about how much how rich. This music is. I mean, last night we were performing in Islington, and I'm on stage, and I'm playing th- through the music, and it's you know we've been rehearsing, and it's open system, but it's, I, it would just struck me how I'm still discovering things within the music, and I think that's uh, really the nature of Arthur's uh, legacy that it's not all on the surface, but it's something that sort of grabs hold of you, and. Uh, it speaks to different people in different ways. Like you know, for for example, I was connecting to the to his instrumental music, to the composition as well as well as the melodies and sort of the possibilities for finding, uh, for taking off from the these musical seeds that Arthur planted. Others have connected to other aspects of, of, of Arthur's music. Some really connect to his, his brilliance as a singer-songwriter. For others, he really uh, speaks, uh, I think, for a whole generation in terms of gay identity. 
and this was a very important part of Arthur's music as well. Others connect to him through the spiritual side, and I think this is, uh, uh, so it's really very rich and very multifaceted. So I think this is something which is very special about Arthur's music, is that he speaks to so many in so many different ways. At the same time, it's really, it's Arthur's music. And it's all of our music. That's, I mean, it's, it's really music that keeps on, uh, it keeps on giving. It's really an, an open system. And in terms of around that time in, in New York, were you going to clubs? Were you going to parties? Like, were you experiencing these, like a lot of this? You mentioned some of Arthur's, like, more um, club hits. Were you going out and hearing this kind of stuff on, on sound systems? Well, not to the extent that, that Arthur was, but, but, yes, having the opportunity to hear... To, to hear Arthur's tracks like at the Paradise Garage where like Larry Levan would, uh, he, he would take a record and he would spend an hour on it and it'd be this constant build. And so, uh, so hearing the music in the clubs, it was really very powerful. I mean, and I've, you know, I've always liked rhythmic music, funky music, dance music. And so I think that was really uh, uh, an important part of the whole experience. And, uh, and so I began having clubs which would have rock bands and then they'd have dance music in between. So there was really a, a sort of, there was already this cross-pollination of the music that, that you would hear and that people would play. It was part of an ongoing, uh, ongoing discussion. And uh, within it as well, this was also a very rich period for salsa music in, in, in New York. So you'd be hearing all this music in the streets, coming out of uh, boom boxes, coming out of windows, coming, uh, you know, in the clubs. I mean, this was, this was New York City, and this, you know, music was very much the soul of New York City. And in terms of your own personal music development, coming back to New York in mm-hmm. 1975, how did you go about sort of throwing yourself into the into the creative scene there? Well, I was in one in one sense, I was very fortunate because I had a friend before then. Uh, I had been living in California, first in San Diego, and in, then in uh, San Francisco, and already I had been uh, sort of pursuing music along those lines of crossing genres. I think early piece of mine, Macho Music, which was on my, my first album, Star Jaws, was really, uh, in a, it was an exploration of both rock and pop music in minimalist form as well. And then so when I moved to New York, um, I had been on the road with a band. It was sort of a sort of f- 50s rock, sort of retro band and we were touring and it was the middle of January and I spent spent the month in Chicago playing with this band and then I came to New York and I had uh, friends who had sort of you know arrived before me from California as well new new people from New York and then immediately I was uh, just met folks in both the St. Mark's poetry scene in, in Soho, you know, the Soho, the scene around the kitchen as well. And so this and it was a very welcoming uh, community. And, you know, musicians, artists, they're always looking for new people, new ideas. So I met Arthur, I met Reese Chatham, Garrett List. I found this really thriving, vibrant community. And I just never went back to California. 
I mean, I had some friends pack up my stuff. I, I mean, I didn't look back. It was just, I arrived in the East Village, and especially after having spent January in uh, Chicago, uh, in New York in February, felt, felt like the tropics by comparison. And there was, you know, just music and performances. And also, it was there was a real possibility for this uh, real sense of, uh, you know, DIY productions. I mean, you... You didn't have to wait for anyone to like offer you a gig because no one would offer you a gig. But basically, you'd find a uh, there'd be a bar which might have slow business, and you say, "Hey, you're not doing anything on Wednesday night. Can I play some music here? Bring some friends." And that's how I think the New York scene grew. It was very, very open and very receptive in that in that way. It was also known as like a very cross-disciplinary scene in terms of musicians dabbling in in art or poetry or other forms other creative forms is that something that you did did, what, did you try and oh, yeah. beyond music well yeah i mean very much i mean it was a community of poets visual artists and uh, it was uh, it was cross disciplinary and also people did multiple things so you had visual artists who also played instruments you had musicians who worked in visual arts and People also uh, connected through their jobs. I mean, it's, you know, I know, you know, so many bands were put together because uh, some folks had been like working in a kitchen or bussing tables together or working as plumbers or doing construction. And this was so it really, uh, I think the artistic community really, really helped both came out of that as well. And you mentioned briefly um, your first solo album, Star Jaws, mm-hmm. which came out on Lovely Music, mm-hmm. um, which is a, just an incredibly intriguing label. And uh, to tell me about your first experiences with, with Mimi Johnson and, and Robert Ashley. Well, I first met Robert Ashley when I was a student at uh, University of California in San Diego, and Bob came down to do a performance, and I was blown away the way he was able to put together this large piece he was working on uh, his opera in memoriam kit carson and i was struck both by the way he was able to gather forces of people and different elements and the way he was able to integrate social structures with musical structures and artistic structures and it was um it was a real inclusive type of music i mean it was very in one sense, it was very avant-garde, it, you know, very extreme, but at the same time, it was very uh, connected to the uh, society and the politics and the science of the time. So I was really blown away by Bob's work, and I just actually transferred schools and went up to Mills College where Bob was teaching. I just sort of left San Diego and, and moved moved ahead. So... Robert actually became a mentor for you. Yes, yes. Robert, he was a uh, a mentor. Uh, I guess I started out as a fan. Then he became a mentor. And then he asked me to work with him on uh, on Perfect Lives, produced musical tracks for this video opera. And that really gave me the opportunity to cut my teeth in the studio because... Uh, this, these were seven half-hour songs recorded multi-track, and this really, I got to spend 
hundreds of hours in a multi-track studio, and Bob really pushed me to experiment. And um, this was really an opportunity for me to uh, cut my teeth in, in the studio and to try things that maybe in other productions they, they, would, they would discourage you from trying. I mean, usually uh, if you work on sort of more mainstream projects, they, they don't want you to go outside the box. They want you to uh, sort of recreate something that's been created before. And this was just the opposite with Bob Ashley. He was not interested in what had been created before. He really wanted to create something new. So I was able to really treat the studio sort of as this large modular synthesizer. And then, uh, so this we had this uh, sort of extended working relationship. And then I was a fan. Then I was a student. He was a mentor. Then we were colleagues and, and, and friends. You mentioned that this outside-the-box approach to music is something that I would say has come to define your own career. What is it about the avant-garde that has appealed to you for so long? I think the thing about music and the thing about art is that you can really create your own world. You can really create a, a perfect world or an idea within a fixed environment of a perfect world. When you do this out in society, usually people mess things up. I mean, they always make things worse. I mean, you know, people go on these campaigns for reform and they suddenly have a new idea and often they make things worse. And uh, But the thing about uh, in music and art is that you can create these worlds and it's kind of risk-free because the only thing you have to lose is your whole reputation but <laughs> but no one really gets hurt otherwise and also it's it's part of the uh, conversation of a of a society I mean culture gets stale ideas get stale you need new you need new approaches it's sort of like and it's trying it's trying to find the multi-dimensionality of things it's you don't want to just look at a uh, you don't want life to be a two-dimensional experience. You know, you can look at, you can be staring at a wall all day long, but, you know, go around the corner and suddenly you'll see, wait a second, that's not a wall, that's a, uh, it might be a cube or it might be a sphere or it might have other dimensions that you might not have experienced. You know, and I think in all in all fields, it's a, it's it's a matter of sort of ex exploring new possibilities, exploring the in intellect. This is this is what we do as human beings. We learn. It's part of the learning process. It's always learning about the world, learning about life, learning about music. I guess for me, that's what avant-garde is. It's also always challenging the status quo. People have a way of consolidating power, political power, artistic power, and I think uh, we shouldn't let folks have a free ride in that. I think we should always be questioning. This is our, I think, uh, perhaps this is why we're put on earth, is to, uh, to question things and to, and to learn. And how did you come to start the Love of Life Orchestra? Well, I think as a uh, composer, I always identified myself as a composer, and I just was not attracted by the what what had been sort of the modus operandi of most uh, composers coming out of sort of the more contemporary or 
or even the classical music scene where you write a piece, then you try to get a bunch of people to play it, and then you know you, you have minimal rehearsal, and then you do another piece and you're starting from scratch again. And no one was offering me commissions to write for existing orchestras or ensembles, and I really needed an, an ensemble to work with for the music to, to grow. And also, I guess I'd always been in bands. It's it just it just like maybe it's just part of my DNA. It's like you know, it's I'm a musician, and what do musicians do? Musicians play with other music, and they have a group of musicians to play together. At the same time, for the early, the early concept of the Love of Life Orchestra was very much also a uh, it was a kind of a, a political, a populist idea, because at the time the uh, sort of the new music, the classical music world at the time. It was very sort of both elitist and it was sort of very removed from uh, actual experience of people's lives. I mean, it was uh, a lot of the music was really hard to listen to uh, and not in a good way. <laughs> so I was really interested in creating this band and also... A, and I'll add that a band, and a musical ensemble, is a society within itself. It's a community. You're defining a community. And people come into a community with a shared purpose, but with their own individual backgrounds. And so I wanted to put together this ensemble in which musicians, artists, coming from different backgrounds could come together in this unified purpose, which would be the music and each bring different ex experience. So you know, some of the players might have been well-trained coming out of the classical world. Others come might have come more out of rock bands. Others were poets and really were not musical performers per se, but were interested in music. And uh, so I felt by bringing together these uh, different people from different backgrounds it would uh, it would it would help inform the music and it would uh, sort of find a music that would 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 reflect society of different people from different backgrounds and different cultures and different interests but all working together with a shared purpose did the reality match the concept or did it take some time to Joe yes and yes the concept uh, I think it work, the reality work, because it, the music really reflected this, and we're still in process. I mean, I'm, st I'm still learning about the music. I mean, I think the thing about music and life is that, uh, you know, the more you go on, I think the less and less I know about it. It's like there are more and more mysteries reveal themselves, and uh, maybe that's just the, uh, the nature of the uh, experience of living. People like Peter Zumo and Randy Gunn have been in the, the Love of Life Orchestra for, for three decades now. Mm -hmm. You must have built some uh, incredibly strong personal and musical relationships in that time. I think so. I mean, it's there's strong musical relationship. There's a, a telepathy that happens. It's almost like you almost don't have to talk about things. You just start playing. You kind of know what the other might might do and you're working from a uh, shared common ground. 
And each one of us has different backgrounds, different interests, and when we go on our own, we do different things. But coming out of both working within the ensemble and working within the community, I mean, the thing is, is that, you know, I have my band, the Love of Life Orchestra, and, you know, Arthur had, you know, his group of musicians he put together. Peter Zumo has his ensemble as well. We're all doing different things, and at some point it might be under my name or it might be under Peter's name or it might be under Ned Sublett's name or even, you know, or Laurie Anderson's name or or whatever. But this is really, uh, it's, it's all generated by a community. And uh, sometimes it's, uh, it seems unfair. Some people get more attention than other people and things come in waves. But I think all of this music that we're all doing is reflected of, reflective of, of, our, of our community. You mentioned Laurie Anderson there. How many times have you collaborated with her in the past? Well, you know, we haven't collaborated much lately, although uh, we're very close, close friends and, you know, we see each other socially you know often i first met laurie in 1976 and there was uh, a dancer named Pooh k and uh Pooh had her loft downstairs from laurie's and uh there would be these open dance jams where people would just come over and dance and these you know dancers and non-dancers and then musicians would come and play along and Laurie came downstairs and I would you know had brought my sax over and then this is when I uh, first met Laurie and that's when we started working together. You released a, a new album called Symphony 5 last year it sounds like that was a result of you coming back to New York again after a, a stint living away what brought you back to New York this time? New York's my home, and it was always, uh, even as I was growing up, I was sort of had a sense of being a diaspora New Yorker. I was always felt like wrenched away from the city. It was my parents moved away when I was three, and they moved down south to Virginia. And so uh, I always identified as a New Yorker, and my would always be visiting my grandparents uh, there and living in the south. I was clearly a Yankee. I wasn't... Uh, I wasn't a rebel or, a, you know, and this, and this was, uh, this was the segregated South. So I guess I always saw myself as, as a New Yorker. At a certain point, I had uh, moved away from the city in the, uh, in the mid-90s, and I was living out west for a while, uh, in, uh, for the most part in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where, um, both raising a family as well as uh, I wanted to pursue sort of longer, larger form pieces. So I was writing operas, music theater pieces, more extended works. Then it was really, um, I always knew I would be coming back to New York. So in 2005, moved back into the city. The city had changed, but at the same time it was still the city. And it was time to uh, both bring the group back together and to uh, write some new music reflected of the changed city, the changed, uh, the changed world. From moving back to New York in, in 2005, the Symphony 5 came out in, uh, in 2014. So mm-hmm. it's quite a long 
I guess, gestation process. Mm-hmm. Tell me about how you went about getting the band back together and how the recording sessions went. Well, I moved back and obviously I was, was still in touch with everyone. And we had done some, you know, one-offs over, over the years as well. And uh, then I guess what I always do, I just sit down and start writing music. And I work modularly and start sort of, you know, compiling these different sections and uh, I learn very much about the music through performance. So uh, uh, we might uh, play something for even for a few years before it becomes really fixed and it and it grows. And it and I mean it's it's funny because at uh, when the symphony came together, say in 20, in 2011, it became clear to me that this was really a, a symphony. And then I sort of began putting together in terms of the movements and preparing it as a symphony. But then uh, after, actually after it was recorded and I began looking at uh, some of my very early notes for it, I found a folder. I mean, you know, I work, work digitally now. And I found a folder which was titled Symphony North. And I had totally forgotten that I began working on a symphony and then just sort of put out of my mind that it was, I was working on a symphony and then began getting into the detail, writing the music, performing it, doing, uh, having the music evolve over a, a series of gigs, and then sort of say, oh, this is a symphony. And then I guess I had forgotten about the original attention, then it came back and uh, sort of revisited it. In terms of the recording, this is actually also d- different from most of my recording, because the uh, all the all the music was was performed live in concert at this wonderful new music performance space called Roulette in Brooklyn. So we recorded the the live concert and had uh, multiple stems direct recordings as well as different room mics around the house and then uh, I asked uh, Jeff Jones uh, aka the Jedi Master who's a wonderful uh, producer who's received Grammys for his work with Wynton Marsalis and Dr. John and then gave uh, Jeff the tracks and he really uh, did some wonderful things in in mixing it and sort of bringing out the uh the the maintaining the energy and the essence of the live performance at the same time sort of making preparing it for uh record release so that show in in brooklyn in 2013 what was the atmosphere in the air like that night i always liked when i was first working with bob ashley and uh he talked about music as news so it's through through a music performance that's like the news of the day. So I think I uh, saw so it's very much as as part of that. It wasn't the intention at the time to be recording a live album or anything. I tend to record as much as I can, and there was the uh, opportunity because uh, of this, this the the setup, the audio setup. They had the Pro Tools uh, really wired into the system so we had uh, uh stems and and i asked jedi uh jeff jones to come in and uh uh record uh, as well so we had these uh tracks and then it was sort of 
then I heard what I had, and um, coincidentally, Ben Freeney of, of Foam Records was in town. We had already been talking about putting this Arthur Russell project together, and uh, and I mentioned I was doing the Symphony Five, and and he said, "Oh, I'll come and hear it." So he came and heard it, fell in love with the piece. The recordings turned out to be, I think quite good and, and really captured an energy and then that uh, then the album really came out of that in terms of the album's title and you mentioned that it's a symphony can you you know explain to a, a layperson like myself what kind of symphonic qualities the record has beyond the being divided into movements well it's 40 minutes which is a, a long a long time and I think there are certain elements of the symphonic form like the the first section the first movement which I call uh, exposition and it's really like in a symphony it's really a laying out of the musical material that it was, it's like that that I would be working with it's establishing of, of the musical language establishing the sound the third movement juvenile is sort of more more playful. It's sort of like a like a like a scherzo in a symphony, which is like the second or third move in the symphony. It's like it starts out sort of setting the foundation, and then there's kind of a playfulness in this. But other than that, I really didn't follow any rules. And the period of of planning and recording the the Symphony Five LP overlapped with the retrospective on on DFA. Can you tell me a bit about how you came, how that record came came into existence, and how you you first hooked up with DFA? Well, I kind of hadn't been thinking about recording at all. I really, uh, it seemed like the record business had kind of died, or just didn't seem interested in what I was doing. I mean, I didn't feel any connection with it, and then I got an email saying that there was some guy named James Murphy who was putting together a uh, a compilation for uh, for for fabric this, cl- this club in in London and sounded cool they wanted to license my track and uh, and there hadn't been much interest in any of my recorded music i mean i didn't know that anyone even remembered it and then not only did uh, James and uh, and Pat Mahoney. Not only did they put this on uh, on the fabric compilation, but they opened and and closed it, and sort of defined it. And then I went to. Uh, obviously, I was pleased and uh, and flattered as well, and flattered as well. And uh, so I went and I met James at a uh, club where he was DJing in New York, and it was like wow. This guy's playing music that I really like. You know, I haven't had this experience. Wait, there's something going on in pop music that I feel like I can connect to again. And then I just got talking with James, and he said, "Oh, you should do a record with us." And initially, they're just interested in doing the re-releasing the EP. And then uh, I got talking with DFA with with Jonathan Galkin, um, who was really running the day-to-day operation of the, of the label. And then I began um, overwhelming him with this bringing in tracks of through the years of 
things that I had been playing. But, uh, you know, I always, I always like to make new music, and it was sort of part of the deal. Okay, we can do some reissues, but I just, you know, want to do some, include some new work as well. So it's not just a retrospective. So that's when, as well, recorded the... Uh, Get uh, another heartbreak, uh, and don't don't redux, which was sort of the the final tracks of it. But in the process, it really it gave me an opportunity to sort of go back and revisit this part of my musical persona. And dance music and disco music was then being now being looked at in a different light. And as well, hearing what James was doing in, uh, with LCD and hearing groups like uh, Hot Chip and Holy Ghost and what Gavin was doing, and suddenly it felt like there was a musical scene that, that I felt connected to. And personally, it really allowed me to revisit this, this part of my music and to think of it in, uh, in new ways. So that fabric... Live 36 mix sounds like it opened quite a few doors and I guess the, the, the full record on, on DFA must have, must have done the same. I was really interested by the, the Justine and Victorian Punk's recordings that made it onto that, yeah. that album. Can you tell me about their provenance? Well, it, this was back in, back in 1979, I guess, and uh, Jay Burnett, an engineer who, uh, who I'd been working with and... Uh, told me that Colette was interested in uh, doing this recording of Beautiful Dreamer for an art piece and uh, did I want to uh, arrange it and uh, and produce it uh, with him and so uh, we booked some time, she had some backers and we booked some time in Electric Lady Studio and recorded the single. I basically brought in my band, Love of Life Orchestra and uh, uh, Colette's a visual artist, a performance artist. I mean, she's not really a singer, but we put sort of... That's why I think there's this sort of very very naive vocal part and, you know, sort of very innocent sound to it. I mean, literally, I was uh, conducting her word for word as the music was going, showing her how to say each word. You can even, if you listen even closely, you can hear the page turn on one of... Uh, at, one, at one point. And... Um, and that was really a one-off for the uh, for her installation piece, "Beautiful Dreamer," in which was really installation, and she would be uh, lying in in a bed in the gallery, and this music would be uh, would be playing, and and at the same time, uh, she really had introduced me to the music of Lucio Battisti, the song "Ancora Two, which was still you, which was the b-side of this and we recorded it in you know over a couple of days and mixed it then i had forgotten about it and as i'm putting together the album for the for dfa this was in the period of myspace uh, remember remember myspace and someone on myspace just sent me a uh posted the cover to this but i totally really forgotten about it. i said wow and, uh, and they happened to have an MP3 of it because I, I didn't even have it digit, digitized. So it was a really uh, a, a fan sent me an MP3, and this reminded me of it. And then I uh, sent this over to James and uh, James Murphy, and it sort of blew James away. And um, that led to its whole other new life. 
And what reaction did you experience when that when that record came out on on DFA? The the retrospective. Well, it was it was really. I mean, you know, it introduced uh, my music to a whole new audience. Um, I'm certainly indebted to to. to James and DFA for for doing that, and also for me, you know, personally, it was a way of uh, of you know hearing this sort of scope of my music all together in one uh, uh, in one context, and then putting it put back together. So it was kind of a uh, how can I say a certain rejuvenation of music which I had been doing in in the eighties. And then um, it was good to hear it also outside of the uh, context, because you know, because when I was originally doing, a lot of people really thought it was really uncool, because you know, everyone was singing about death, and it was all this nihilistic stuff, and you know, and you had the Dead Boys, you know, who I love, and you know, so-called no wave scene, and there was all sort of, you know, there was a lot of darkness, you know, coming out of the punk scene, and I had the love of life orchestra. You know, it's like people would come up to me and say, you know, oh, is this a Christian band? I said, well, no, this is a secular humanist band. Then they'd stop talking to me. But by the time the DFA record came out, people forgot that this wasn't supposed to be cool. And they started listening to the music. And they started listening to the music for what it is. And also at the time, you know, in the punk scene, everyone was talking about death and everything. Then people really started dying. You know, then the then AIDS hit, and it was uh, it was it was really fucked up, and uh, you know, so the whole music changed, and then the whole you know th- the world really changed a lot. And I think sometimes it takes a while for music to find its own time, and uh, I think the uh, my music seemed seemed to to speak to the t- even even though it was music I had. A lot of it recorded decades before. It seemed to be very current. And I guess that what you're saying there in in terms of your music being current and being embraced by a a newer generation has also led to some interesting collaborations in recent times. One I wanted to ask about was, was Factory Floor. How did that come about? Well, it just, you know, once again, I mean, social media. I, I got a message out, totally out of the blue from Nick Void saying, you know, we were common friends with Reese. She knew Reese Chatham's music. She liked uh, some tracks she had heard, and she just sent me some uh, some raw tracks. Would I want to do something with it? I wasn't really thinking much about it, but I just loaded it into uh, a computer. I work in digital performer at the time I was work that the software I was working with. And then I started laying down tracks. And I said, wow, this is fun. And then I started adding tracks and doing a mix, and I sent her back a mix, and they really liked it. And then we continued working and exchanging files back and forth. And so it really came out of very organically. I mean, it wasn't something like a record company saying, oh, you know, why don't you guys do these things together? It'd be great for marketing. It was sort of like I got this, you know, this this note from Nick, we started sharing files. Then we had a mix, and then Optimo wanted to release it. And that's what happened. Was the record that you did with Tim Burgess last year, was that similarly organic in, in terms of the way it came about? Yeah, yeah, because, you know, I met Tim through Nick, and we got talking and sort of, and he was a fan of the work, and we said, let's, 
you know, let's do something together. And then he wanted to do a cover of the of one of Arthur's songs. I couldn't say it to your face. So we began working on that and then some new songs. And that sort of came organically. And then then, then we have a new, re- you know, new release, which came out this year again, which, and it's sort of part of an ongoing project. So uh, hopefully soon there'll be a, a an album of our uh, collaborations together. I like it when working relationships happen organically. I mean, it's um, uh, we're kind of in a curatorial world now. We're uh, you know sort of non-artists, non-musicians. They sort of like the idea. They have this idea of putting so and so together and do this, and it sort of becomes sort of more of a stamp of a curator rather than an artist, and which can be very interesting. But I also tend to like it when musicians or artists meet each other and like, you know, hit it off. It's sort of like, you know, a love at first sight thing. Even with instrumentals, it's like we have uh, Jerry O'Byrne, I mean, wonderful Irish guitarist and, and singer-songwriter, who I happened to meet last year when I was in on the Dingle Peninsula in Kerry for uh, a week or, or a couple of weeks. And I heard Jerry playing at a pub with some singers who were uh, close friends with, uh, with Kit Fitzgerald, who's my wife and video artist collaborator and she uh she knew the singers that he was playing with so i went to to john benny's pub in dingle and heard him playing with these singers i sort of kind of liked his approach and he, he did one song and i don't know it just struck me and i introduced myself and then um we met the next day and had tea together and uh he had some instruments and i brought a horn and we just started jamming and it just you know there was a just a musical affinity right there. And then in putting it together, the tour from uh, for instrumentals, I th- just thought uh, Jerry would m- would make sense, it would be sort of uh, simpatico with, with Arthur's music. So I like that, the way these sort of things happen organically in terms of artists' collaborations. And you're also remastering some Love of Life Orchestra tracks for re-release. Is yeah, that, yeah. How's that process coming along? Well, it's, it's in one sense it's overwhelming because there's, I mean, a lot of stuff that's unreleased. Also, a lot of stuff in analog media. So it has to do with digitizing, going back to the raw tracks. It's always a question how much to mess with it and to add things to it or how much to stick with what's original. And it's sort of... It becomes apparent when you're right in the middle of the tracks. And in any case, just by putting things in different orders, different context, you know, there's, I think there's, I'm discovering stuff about my own music that uh, I guess wasn't necessarily apparent at the time. You know, sometimes you're in, in, you're just doing things, you're doing life. It's not going to have a conversation and just making these notes. And then years later, go back and to listen and see, okay, what's there? Usually, I mean, I go through this thing that if I record a concert, if I listen to it the next day, it's it's like the sense, oh my God, what have I done? I'm never going to make music again. I'm failed. This is like an t- utter disaster. Then I might go back to it a year later and say, well, you know, it wasn't so bad. And then I wait a little bit longer and say, hey, that was really good. And uh, it drives me crazy. You know, people have, my family has learned to expect this from me. It's like, 
don't listen to the recording the day after. You're not going to like it. it. It's you know it's hard to uh, transfer that the experiential to you know to more as a listener. But it gets better with age. Either that or it gets worse. <laughs> so and at that point you just have to say okay, this is good. This is crap, or maybe it's both. You know, it's uh, sort of editing, the, sort of the ongoing uh, editing process, rejuxtapositions, and also, you know, you put things in different contexts, and it has different meanings. Mm-hmm. 